Well, there are many things in life that lead you to ask questions, either of others or of yourself or maybe experts that are around you. Events happen that cause all of us to ask others for questions, maybe questions to doctors about what is going on or questions of economists to help explain things that we are going through or maybe even particular friends or counselors that we're aiming to seek truth from or get guidance of when things in life just seem to happen. Maybe some of you may be watching this live at home and are asking the Lord when you'll be able to come back, when you'll feel safe in order to be around people. I was in seminary when the rise of what is called new atheism was at, in many ways, its height, where outspoken and angry agnostics ridiculed Christians in published form for being what they would call stupid people or uninquisitive people or people who were just completely unaware of the world around them. Basically, Christians in their minds were guilty of blindly following someone, blindly following this man named Jesus without asking any real or particular questions that if they just asked it, they would recognize that they are silly or foolish. Well, Jesus actually also asked questions in his own lives of his followers. And he asked a lot of questions of people who were against him or curious non-followers of his name or even questions of those who called themselves his own disciples or followers of him. You could do a study on all the questions that Jesus actually asked people out loud or people were asking back of Jesus. And there was this one time, though, where Jesus asked a particular question, and it wasn't a question that was toward any of his disciples or toward any of those who hated him, but it was a question that was directed toward the Father himself. Now, the circumstances in your life should always have a common end to them. The end ought to be to pray. A cancer diagnosis comes across the living room. It should lead you to prayer. Success in the stock market should lead you to prayer. Unexplained infertility should lead us to prayer, wondering why you seem to be so anxious or depressed or angry. All of those things ought to lead us constantly in prayer. And our scriptures are not silent about people praying. We have many examples of God's own people who are calling out to him in prayer. If stuck in a pit of despair about what to pray, we have several examples of people that we can follow or emulate in their own prayers. But, but have you ever meditated on or considered in long form the actual prayer of Jesus on the cross? The cry that goes out to the Father. Have you ever meditated on what that prayer from the Son of God was? The question that he brings to the Father in the midst of pure agony, in the midst of pain and suffering brought by other enemies. Have you ever considered Jesus' prayer to the Father? So friend, I hope today you will see from the Bible how not only we see God pray, but also we see how we can pray in reflection of what his prayer was like. Now last week I uh, noticed some stunned faces when I said that there would be eight points in the sermon. Well, this week there are actually 10. So 
I got bored around Friday and added a couple. You'll see them divided in four different sections. If you're using an outline, they have four points and then three points, then two points, and then, of course, one point at the end. I spent a lot of time on just that. I had to cut some things, add some things, just so hopefully it made some logical sense. But I I think that there are four things that you need to grasp about this passage, about Jesus's prayer, four things that you ought to grasp or know. First, I think you must know or you have to know that this is Jesus really dying on the cross. Okay, when you examine this section of scripture, when you ask of yourself what this prayer means, you you need to know that this is a prayer coming from the person of Jesus who is actually dying on the cross. It's not a metaphor. It's not something that was as an example. It's not even something that was neat for other people to see or sad for other people to see, but it was in particular a death on display. Second, it is vital for you to know and to grasp that Jesus was speaking out as a man. Okay, that, that, that's why he cried to the Father. You need to recognize that Jesus being fully God and fully man, is crying out in this situation, in this circumstance, as a man. Now, it's not commonly known or even commonly taught because it does get get seemingly interesting to understand that the person of Jesus, the, the Son of God, actually has two natures. So you and I have one nature. And part of the marvelous testimony of Jesus coming incarnate, and, and we know from the confessions of old that he didn't take on himself flesh, but rather took to himself flesh. So those different words mean something different. Him by taking to himself flesh, meaning he took to himself a new human nature. The historic understanding of the person of Christ is that he is one person who possesses two natures. So if you think of the, the complexity of the Trinity, you have one God. There is one essence in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the person of the Son, there is one Son. There is one Lord here, but showing himself in two natures, one of divinity and one of humanity. And when Jesus here cries out, you've got to know that he is crying out as a man. Okay, that is helpful to understand. According to his human nature, death was something that he understood, something that he sensed, something that he was living through and then dying of. According to his human nature, the incarnate Christ needs to eat food to survive, needs to have blood remain within him. Even in this dying circumstance, he's thirsty and wine is pressed against his mouth. According to his human nature, the incarnate Christ needs to eat He grows in knowledge. He grows into something that is displayed for us as perfect, but he is also wholly divine and wholly perfect. It's not like a blend of sand or bringing hot water to cold water. Now you have a new sense of water. It's it's mysterious to us because we can't fathom it, but you need to know that Jesus on the cross is crying out as a man. Our scriptures speak of the things that must belong to humanity and also speaks of the things that belong to the divine. We see this example in Acts 20, verse 28, where it says, care for the church of God, where Paul was exhorting the Ephesian elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained. So you think of God obtaining or purchased with his own blood. So the elders are to care for the church, which God has purchased with his own blood, the the human blood of the Son. A puzzling description of God if not viewed as triune and not viewed as 
dual natures here are two natures, but it's wonderful if understood that God is in one essence and three persons, and within that second person of the Trinity, he has two natures, so that you, here's why, you can look at this passage and understand, not, maybe not fully fathom, but understand what Jesus is going through to where an application would be to emulate or act like Jesus as he is crying on the cross. Earlier, I told you that there are things that you and I bring to the Lord in prayer. And here we see the son doing the same, though his is more drastic, which we will get into in a little bit. Charles Spurgeon said of this particular verse, verse 46, I am not divine enough to ever explain it, but I will utter some thoughts about it. So that is hopefully my goal as well, uttering some thoughts. If you leave here perplexed, just go, well, he uttered some nice thoughts up there. But we need to draw worth between the divinity and the humanity here in our Lord. We need to see him as the son of God, the substitute on the cross. And as the Lord Jesus said, my God, my God. Think about that. A way to meditate on scripture is to isolate those different words and to make some more pronounced the others. We often think of this very quickly. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? My God, he says. In other parts of the scripture, he says, our father, or he says, my father. But here he is saying, my God, my God, and crying out in human form. Third, in this first point, third, it is vital to know that Jesus didn't sin here. Him crying out to the father in this way is no way a sin. Jesus never sinned. He doesn't sin. He cannot sin. He never would sin because he's perfectly in the realm of pursuing the Lord. He wasn't criticizing his father by the circumstances of his life, but he was instead pleading for relief in the midst of trouble. Why have you forsaken me? Maybe some of your prayers reflect the same way. Maybe some of your prayers are just very open-ended questions. What in the world is going on? My God. Fourth thing to know is how Jesus was forsaken. It says here that he was forsaken. How was Jesus being forsaken here in this text? It is the, the crux or the hinge on which the whole statement formulates. He was both outwardly and inwardly being forsaken. You can write that down if you're taking notes. How was Jesus being forsaken? He was outwardly and inwardly being forsaken. Forsaken meaning he was left behind. The Greek word is in catalypse. He was rejected. If you forsake something, you abandon it. An outward forsaking being symbolic of what was awfully or internally done. Jesus was being forsaken by the Father and he was crying out to him in this way of the senses that he had and in feeling this. Now, point two will expand on this fourth thing. So let me guide you just briefly on how the Father forsook Jesus outwardly. So in the second point, there are three. <laughs> I just realized how dumb my numbering system is. In the second point, there are three outward observations to see, which comes after the fourth point of the first point. So as long as we're clear, there are three outward observations that I want you to see. Three things that I think you need to grasp, but then three observations that you have to see about how Jesus was outwardly forsaken. The first one is it was dark. You need to grasp that, not just because it's written in Scripture, but you need to grasp the gravity of what is happening here when it is dark. Darkness fell on him. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over 
all the land. Now, some historians want to say that this darkness was by some dark thunderstorm that was nearby. No way. That's never how this type of darkness is described in any of Scripture. They never describe darkness like that in their own literature of the day. Now, some people see this as a black wind coming from the desert, like a dust storm. I don't know if you've ever seen a pure dust storm, but it's like this giant tidal wave where you're in the thick of it, you can't see anything around you. But that's not the case at all either. Some see that there was an eclipse of the sun, but that is scientifically and physically impossible because all of this was happening at Passover, and Passover occurs at a full moon, and a full moon is the opposite of an eclipse. So instead, darkness at midday can only be attributed to the hand of a providential and sovereign God. The work of God you must grasp, you must observe as darkening the earth. Now, a church historian in the 200s, a man named Origen, quotes a Roman historian, Phlegon, who said, from Rome in the 14th year of Tiberius, which is how we try to grasp of when exactly Jesus would have died on the cross, Phlegon says that from Rome he was observing, and as a historian, that the whole sky went dark to such a degree that you could see the stars. Now, now it's amazing. Some of you live very far out of town. And one of the cool things about you living far out of town is when you go outside in the middle of the night, you look up and you can see the stars, right? That's how dark it was described, not using a metaphor, but from all the way over in Rome, it was dark. When you picture the crucifixion of Jesus, you may have a picture of daylight in your mind. But for half of the time that he hung there, it was completely dark, darkness. In the Gospel of Matthew is a theme or a motif that runs throughout the entire book. And in fact, darkness and light is a motif or theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. We remind ourselves of when darkness arrived in Egypt and death came right next. And then deliverance of God's people from Egypt was held by him. Here, darkness comes to the one who was on the cross and then death would come immediately after. And it's from that that we see Christian, the deliverance of man was held by God in its orchestration of all things here. But first, you got to know that it was dark. Second, Jesus here, you got to recognize that as a way to understand or grasp God's outward forsaking him is that Jesus here remained on the cross. He was forsaken and that God the Father did not rescue God the Son from the cross. I want you to turn just briefly to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. Keep your place in Matthew chapter 27, but Psalm chapter 22. Go to verse 1. This psalm is a prophetic psalm and an actual occurrence where this psalm prophetically explains Jesus's own crucifixion. It's amazing how it amplifies the New Testament account of the actual cross, which it shouldn't be so surprising to us that Jesus's words on the cross are direct words from Psalm 22. 700 some years before the Persians invented crucifixion and years before the Romans perfected it, the psalmist writes in Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus utters on the cross. The father didn't deliver Jesus from the cross. So of course, Jesus, the man feels forsaken. 
He had to endure this death. He died on this cross. The father could have delivered the son there, and there could have been some mystical trap door at the bottom of it. He could have just sent his mercy on the son to where he had done enough. He had suffered enough, but he didn't exactly die. He could have sent angels to care for him. But no angels came. No army was sent. He was forsaken as God provided no physical help nor any comfort. Look at Psalm 22, verse 11, where it says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Gaze down at verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. You might have read that politely in times back. You might have read something like, Be not far off from me, for trouble is near, like it was a Shakespearean sonnet, but rather it is a cry from the wilderness. Why are you far off? Come help me. Why am I here? And the Father doesn't rescue Jesus from the cross, but allows him to die. He was forsaken. No supernatural sustenance was given to him at all. Back in Matthew 27 and verse 46, forsaken means to leave someone on the field in defeat. Like you might leave a dead car on the side of the road. You forsake it and move on. Or in an enemy territory, you may slay the opposition. And in rather picking up the pieces, you just move on to the next battle. Jesus was left by the Father in hostile territory and hostile activity. God the Father could have helped God the Son, but he didn't. And Jesus, truly in humanity, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus knew that this was coming. In the garden of Gethsemane, the night before, he said that he would do anything to not have to endure this torturing death. And in fact, he wanted to not die so much. His sweat was like blood dripping out of his pores as he knew of the agonizing experience of what was going to come upon him on the cross. And what was coming upon him on the cross was a forsakenness or a wrath from the Father that he was sent to fully endure. There an angel in the garden, though, comforted him and was sent to sustain him. But here on the cross, no angel was sent. So second, Jesus remained on the cross. That's how we can think about and understand how he felt forsaken. Third, he forsook him by allowing him to be mocked and allowing him to suffer. Now, if you look at Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8, we see almost a a detailing. It's It's an amazing way of intertextually understanding the gospel through the different testaments of the scripture where Jesus is hearkening back to what was going to be said about him in Psalm 22. And here, when we keep on reading Psalm 22, there in verse 7, it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. We see this agonizing taunting of those who are around Jesus. And in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43, turn there, turn back to Matthew 27, verses 39, where we see this effect being played out for all of us to see. In verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others and he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him now. You can tell they're mocking him with this language. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Can you imagine hanging on a cross and hating someone so much to your right or to your left that you would curse them as you hung in the same way? And the father let it happen. God didn't keep it in the dark. He didn't just allow Jesus to remain on the cross, but he also allowed God's enemies to ridicule him. He also allowed God's enemies to bring on a great sense and a physical sense of suffering. Back in Psalm 22, we see in verse 14, Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. The way that someone would hang on a cross is that they would have to lift themselves up by holding the nails in their hands just in order to breathe. And as they would drop, it would almost be like all of their joints would go out of sync. Many bulls encompass me, it says. And in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot herd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. The, the, The understanding of all that is going on inside of his body, he can recognize that his hands are hurting, his arms are hurting, his femurs are hurting, his back is hurting. And they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My previous life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. We don't know a lot about Jesus' suffering on the cross. In fact, some accounts just say that he was crucified and then went on. And we know that he thirsted. We know that he was under physical torment. We know that he actually amazingly had a quick death. Oftentimes people would hang on a cross for days at a time before they would pass away. And his death was so brutal and so crucial that it was only about six hours. We ask ourselves, how did God forsake Jesus outwardly? And we see all these ways. But more and most importantly, we need to see these Two ways where God the Father forsook God the Son. So point number three, two inward doctrines that you must believe. In order to believe the gospel, in order to believe in Christ, you don't need to know. You don't need to believe that it was dark. You don't need to know that he physically suffered. You don't need to know what year it was or what happened, although all of that bolsters our faith and causes us to be more firm and recognizing of who he is. But these are things that you must know because they are the very gospel itself. The first thing you must know is the presence of wrath that strikes and smites. It's a mystery for us to try to comprehend. You must know how God the Father forsook God the Son on the cross by the very presence of wrath. Think about it. The very presence of wrath from the Father to the Son actually struck him and smites him. 
the Father removed from Jesus a conscious sense of the Father's presence. This is something the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, our Lord Christ, had never known from eternity past. He had always been in perfect communion. The Son had always been in perfect communion with the Father. Think of that. It wasn't the outward forsaking that caused Jesus to really inwardly cry out, but the inward forsaking. He never says, my God, my God, why did you let them torment me? He never says, my God, my God, why did you allow them to mock me? He never says, my God, my God, why are you leaving me up here? Or why did you darken your creation at the climax of my victory? But rather, my God, my God, why have you, the Father, forsaken me? The piercing question of Jesus to the Father, the prayer from the one who will later intercede on our behalf, lifts lifts itself up to the Father in eternal agony. Have you ever considered the broken heartedness of Jesus on the cross? While he was on the cross. In his humanity, he senses the Father's love no longer. His communion with the Father has been separated by the sin's wrath that he was bearing, the sins that were placed on him as he was bearing those sins. It was not just the the punishment that was placed on him, but the separation of communion between he and the Father. He sinned not, but then and there he bore the unspeakable weight of all of our sins. Who could survive that? Dane Ortland, a theologian and author, says to lose the depth of communion was to die. The great love at the heart of the universe was being torn in two. The world's light was going to darkness. Now, what's not being said here in this passage is that the Father's love for the Son was being extinguished or being blotted out. Or that God left Jesus. There's no way to break apart the triune God. The Trinity cannot be broken in that sense. So don't imagine the separation of the divine. But that at the cross there was a loss of the experience of the Father's love. Jesus' humanity lost the sense of the Father's love. The, The human sense of the heavenly presence was separated. Jesus felt, went through, and underwent the very weight of our sins. And that's what separates anything from the knowing love of God is the presence of sin in life. And by Jesus bearing the sins of his people, by him taking on the sins of those who would believe in him, he is experiencing the full weight of those sins, which is wrath, hanging on the cross, standing in for all who the Father would give him. Jesus lost a sense and experience of love between him and the Father. Without this communion, he cried out. Now, many people have died of a broken heart. Many have felt abandoned by others. Many of your prayers may reflect David's in the Psalms. Where are you, God? Or why is this happening? Or why do I thirst for you? Or pant for you? Or long for you? But nobody has felt the full venting of God's righteous wrath like this. There on the cross, God was not striking a morally neutral tree, but he was striking sins and smiting evil. God was splintering the lovely one. Beauty and goodness himself was being fully 
uglified and vilified. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You must know at the wrath, you must know of the wrath that Jesus was bearing on the cross, which caused him, Jesus, to cry out of God's forsakenness. But second, you must know of the internal forsaking. The reason why he was there, the reason why he hung there was as a substitution for those who were not hanging there. Jesus was hanging there as a substitution. So you have the the presence of wrath on Jesus. And then secondly, you have him being there as a substitution of God's people. Jesus hung there so that we ugly ones could be freely beautified, pardoned, and calmed. Our heaven is given through his hell. Our entrance into love through his loss of it. Passing through the horror of the cross and drinking down the flood of filth, the scriptures say that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he place himself there as a substitution? Why did he bear the very wrath of God? The scriptures answer us in John 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, which meant the life of a son. Jesus died as a substitute for believers. Christ Jesus was forsaken of God because we deserved to be forsaken of God. He was there on the cross in our place and in our role. And had we been there upon the cross as sinners that that we are by reason of our own sin, we don't deserve to enjoy the favor of God. We would have been going through the same thing. Yet the depth of his cry would have been minuscule to what he was enduring. God the Son was there as a substitution. So Jesus standing in the place of the sinner and enduring that which would vindicate the justice of God had to come under the cloud as the sinner must have come. And if Christ had not taken our place, it would be, or the judgment that is foretold to those who reject Christ Jesus, that's the judgment that will come to you, the very wrath of God. Since he has come under the wrath of God, We ought to remember, though, that he was given over to God so that you and I who believe in him might never be given over to God in such a way. That the joy of of seeing that the tension and the parallel of, of the wrath of God and the grace of God here is because Jesus endured the wrath of God as a substitute for us. We will only enjoy the mere grace of God, the presence of the Spirit in our own lives. We can boldly cry out, who shall separate us from the love of God? Because there was one who was separated on our account. And with the Apostle Paul, we can confidently affirm that nothing in the whole universe shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that Jesus had for the Father, the the love that the Father had for us through the work of Jesus, by the sending and inflaming of the Spirit, we see the miraculous work of grace even on display here at the cross. So there are two things you must know there. God's wrath and Jesus' a substitute, but it leaves us, or it leaves you, with just one way to leave. And you have two ways that you can leave, but you can only leave with one of them. The first way that you must leave is to believe in the truth of Scripture about the atonement of Christ Jesus. Friend, the testimony of Scripture is clear. If you don't believe in Jesus' work here on the cross, if you don't see His work as being executed on your behalf, 
It says that the ways of you is the very wrath that he endured. But by accepting him or what the scriptures call believing in him or trusting in him as your very savior at that place, him acting as your savior and continuing to be your savior, you can trust in the very grace of God forever. The gospel is on display here where the gospel literally means good news. It is the good news of salvation that God has provided in the person and the work of his son, Christ Jesus. The gospel here concerns the entrance of Christ into the world on the mission of salvation and and climaxing here on the cross where he bought the bride that God was given him. So to understand the gospel, it is that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was born under the law, that he perfectly obeyed the law at every point and never had any sense of disobedience to the law. And Christ has now obeyed for us in our place and has met all the demands of the law. And to the cross he went where he suffered the curse of the law because of our law breaking. And on the cross, he who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. And all the sins of those who would ever believe upon Christ were transferred to him as he hung upon the cross. And Jesus here appeased the righteous anger of God. Jesus reconciled sinful man to holy God. Jesus here redeemed us or bought us out of the slave market of sin and into the righteousness of God's own people. Friend, if you are one who questions life and you question your own eternal sake, you question the meaning of things, you question even the consequences of things that you have endured or will endure, the answer to all of those questions is exactly the gravity of what Jesus cried out for on the cross. The answer to all of our longing is actually the person and the work of Christ Jesus. The call of the scriptures is to believe in him, to place your trust in him. And you can do that. You can only leave in one way, either rejecting Christ or believing in him in the scriptures. God is calling you to believe in him. Now for the Christians in this text, for those who believe in the person and the work of Jesus, the way that we ought to leave is to act like Jesus acted here, to pray like Jesus prayed in our, in our short kind of mini sermon of praying. So if you are new to us and you haven't been here before, we normally just go through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line, paragraph by paragraph. We're taking the month of January and just talking about prayer, whereas last week we talked about how to pray corporately as a body. And here we're called to pray like Jesus. And how did Jesus pray in this passage? He prayed the very words of God to God. One of the easiest ways, so just practically here, you can place your pencil down, just speaking application at this point. The easiest way to pray, the most fervent way to pray, the most biblical way to pray, the most Christ-centered way to pray is to pray God's very words. Here, Jesus is using what was going to be talking about him from Psalm 22, where it said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's going, I'm living it. But the words of his mouth are from the very words of God. And the way that we can pray all over the map in any circumstance that we are in are always from the word. We want, we want not only our ambition to come from God's word, but also our very words to come from God's word. The easiest testimony to give is from Psalm 23. Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where it allows you as a dad to say, Lord, I need your help as a shepherd. I'm not what I ought to be. I want to be in my family like you are a shepherd to your flock. 
Or maybe you're constantly going through the battle of never having a shepherd in your life. The dad wasn't there. The mom was trying as hard as she could. Oh, Lord, I have a handicap of what a good shepherd is like, but teach me of what the good shepherd is. You see how this prayer could fill you. I shall not want. Lord, you know that in a prideful way, I think I can earn everything that I need this day, but humble me. Give me what I need and let me cherish you. Or for some of you, as the day goes on, you look at the bank account. And what God is calling you to is a dependence of him, of the great shepherd. He makes you lie down in green pastures. You could, you could rejoice all day long that we have, we have beds with springs in them, right? That make us comfortable at night. Like this room has a heater in it that's blowing hot air all in this room so that we can comfortably sing and pray. Like what a great, kind grace of the Lord. You see how just a couple of words can fill your prayer life or when you just feel like you are at a deep loss. And every day that goes by makes you long for heaven more and more. You can pray, dear Lord, thy kingdom come. I wait for it more eagerly today than ever before. But as long as I am here, give me great work to do. The the testimony of praying like Jesus ought to heighten our view of exactly who Jesus is. And friend, you will never pray like Jesus had to pray here. You will never pray that prayer. You never need to have that forsakenness in your life because of the presence of the Spirit in your own life. But you can pray until we are in the very presence of God, that until we are perfectly in His presence, praying for Thy will to be done. And that reminding ourselves that He is our God. He is my God. He is our God and our chief shepherd. So friend, in whatever circumstance you are in. The Lord is directing us and guiding us by his word. His word is like a lamp to our feet and a guide to our path. And may it light our ways as we follow him and may we pray like Jesus prayed, never having to go through what Jesus went through on our behalf. Let's pray to him now in thankfulness. Our Lord, we are thankful for the testimony that we can see from Matthew 27 and also from Psalm 22, we recognize of what your son went through on our behalf and we pray that you would keep our attention on the love of the son for us, that we would esteem him and herald him and love him in such a way that we bring more credit and honor and glory to you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us words to pray. We pray that we would be so attuned with your word that we would know nothing of life but your life. I know nothing of death, but your death. Oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us and guide us as we worship our risen Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.